Hey folks, welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast, where I can promise you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we'll never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships, happiness, and much more. Because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a PB at your next race, or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. By the way, you can get access to a lot more information if you're on my mailing list. I typically email my group three times a week with tips and hints on all of those topics mentioned above. And if you'd like to join, you can find a link in the show notes or just email beth at thetriathloncoach.com. And as a blatant bribe, we've got some free gifts for anyone who signs up. So in recent months, we've had a few guests onto the show who've chatted about heart rate variability in a way of measuring fitness and recovery. Anna Hemmings, who's today's guest, came to my attention when I read Alistair Brownlee's latest book, Relentless. Anna's a two-time Olympian and a six-time world kayak racing champion, but after her third world championship victory, she suffered from chronic fatigue. And I was really interested in how she recovered from that and how the community spirit of group training really helped. I was also fascinated by the way in which Anna uses breathing practice to improve heart rate variability and in the process, help manage workplace stress for executives and overcome performance anxiety. You know, the sort you get before you make a big speech. There's some fascinating crossovers with previous podcasts on breathing and stress management. And if you listen carefully, you'll find that some of Anna's lessons can be used in your own sporting performances, such as managing anxiety before an open water swim. Anyway, before I spoil the story, let's crack on and hear from Anna. Welcome to the show, Anna Hemmings. Hi, thank you for having me. No, you, you're most welcome. I found out about you, Anna, because I'm not from the kayaking world. Um, I did know Tim Brabants. He won an yes. Olympic gold, didn't he? In, in, was that a similar event to what you participated in? Yes, absolutely. In? We're from the same club. Ah, well, yeah. I met I met Tim. Um, Jack Maitland, who was involved with the performance triathletes in Leeds, and I were sponsored for a while by Gatorade, and Tim was sponsored by Gatorade as well. So we ended up at a couple of we ended up at a couple of events, and uh, I think I've got a photograph of me uh, holding the box with his gold medal in somewhere. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah, I've known Tim since we were probably we started at the same club at the same time, around like ten, eleven years old. Um, yeah, so I've known Tim for many years. Um, yes, amazing double Olympic champion and medalist and one of our yeah, most successful kayakers ever. I remember chatting with Tim and saying, you know, at what point did you know you were going to win the gold medal, Tim? He said, after the first stroke, and I went, whoa, that's confidence. He said, well, I knew from races in that season that I'd beaten everybody that would have been in the final. And the only thing that could really stop me was a broken paddle. And usually that happens on the first two strokes when you're putting all the effort in to get get going off the line. Is that the sort of experience you had as well when you were when you were winning? Yeah, and I think that um you've got to have that belief, right? Otherwise you're probably not going to do it. And you know, that's just that's confidence, isn't it, in yourself and your ability. And and often and like Tim's is, you know, that comes from your build-up it comes from your preparation it comes from knowing what kind of shape you're in and preparing your mind and body so that you can sit on that start line and know that nothing the only thing that's going to get in my way is you know is that like something goes wrong is um or it's me who's going to get in my way if I do everything that I need to do in the right way Mm -hmm. I'm the only person who's going to stop me from winning today um and yeah you you, you never know the outcome, but you can know that, yeah, I've got this. Mm. So let's give people a little bit of a uh, backstory about you. Um, you were, if they haven't picked up already, you an international kayaker, very successful. Uh, you won multiple world championship titles. Was it, was it six, seven? I won six world championships. Yes, I did. Yes. And um, anything else that we should know then? I, apart um, from them? Three European championships and I competed at two Olympic Games, Beijing and Sydney. Okay, how was that whole? Well, that's quite a bit apart, then, isn't it? That's eight years apart. So, uh, yes. Um, what happened to the the bit in between Athens? So that's as you know, I suffered from chronic fatigue syndrome for two years and was out of the sport um, okay. in between two thousand three and two thousand five. So right in the middle of the Athens, um, those yeah, the Olympic Games in two thousand and four. Oh, well, that, we are, we are going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, because, and that'll be interesting to come back from something like chronic fatigue and manage the training and still get to the level of, you know, participating in the Olympics. 
Um, and I think you won world championships after you'd come back, didn't you? I won well. three world championships following the illness, yes. Right, okay. Yeah. And then Beijing in 2008, so yeah. So I won three before I was ill and then three afterwards. It was very symmetrical. Oh. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, how did you get into kayaking then? Oh, random. You know, it, it's it's not a sport that you kind of go, Mom, Mom, please take me kayaking. Um, yeah, yeah you know, they, don't do, was, they don't do it as many school curriculum. Uh, no, it's not part they? of the school curriculum. It's not regularly on that list of summer camps. Um, but it was a summer holiday activity that we did. So my mom did just pick up a leaflet um, saying, come and try kayaking. And uh, we went along to the club. It was a week-long course, you know, sort of mornings. I uh, went along with my brother. And it was kind of, you know, we were always doing different sports. You know, we were doing a week of tennis camp and a week of basketball or, you know, whatever, just for stuff to keep us busy in the summer holidays. And it was one of those. Um, but we did the course. We loved it. Um, you know, it was a lovely summer. So the weather was nice. We're out in the kayak, splashing mm-hmm. about on the River Thames. And we enjoyed it. And then... Um, and then we joined the club. We did like a month's trial and and then, you know, joined the club fully after that. And, and that was where it began. And and luckily it was just down the road from where we lived. Um, and also at the time and for many years after that, it was a very successful club in terms of it was one of the best clubs in the country. It was a very competitive club. So that played really nicely into my competitive nature. They were all about racing. They were all about training. They were all about, you know, helping the paddlers down there to be the best they could be. Um, so that was just right up my street, you know, racing people in a boat, making your boat go faster, seeing how fast you could make this little thing go. Um, so, yeah, we just loved it, and that's where it began. Because you, you wouldn't have been racing kayaks to start with, would you, when you went on that first camp? It would have been more about messing about, probably with those little stubby ones, was it, that turned no, really quickly? No, 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 no. So we're talking about flat water kayaking, yeah. which is very different to slalom kayaking, which are those shorter, mm-hmm. smaller kayaks. Um, so no, you get it. So there are differences between the beginner boat and, you know, an elite racing boat, but they're the same length um, and, yeah, they just get narrower and more... Um, concave so the they become more unstable as you mm. go into more racing boat they get lighter um yeah but no the um they're just more stable but not shorter and they're not those boats that you see people you can't you can't eskimo roll one of these kayaks um they're very even the the beginner boats are quite unstable and you fall out of them all the time until you mm-hmm. learn um so yeah we were in kayaks from the word go I used to have, I live right by the canal here. So I used to have a, uh, a kayak, one of those touring kayaks that I used to put uh-huh. on just for uh, tootling around on. And then a friend of mine said, Oh, why don't you come down? I'm doing some sea kayaking now, Sai. We're, we're doing some racing stuff. So I went to Skegness and he put me in. He said, This isn't the top boat. He said, This is, but this is more stable. But have a go in this. Honestly, it's like sitting on a razor blade. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got to use that paddle as a third point of the tripod, haven't you, really? And uh, if your paddles are out in the water at any time, um, unless you're moving forward with some speed, you, you're likely to uh, you're likely to topple over, and it's made much worse in the sea if you've got waves coming at you from the side as well. Yeah, well, the sea kayaks are a little bit different to the to the racing kayaks. Um, they need to be a bit more stable. But yeah, you're absolutely right. the The racing kayaks are very unstable, and 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 it is easier the earlier you've started to learn to paddle one of those. The um, it's very hard to build that stability uh, when you start as an adult. It's very difficult. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's, but the, you know, but after a few years, it's second nature and you can sit there, you can stand up in your boat. You can, you know, you don't use the paddle as a point of stability. You, you, you learn that. Um, but it's difficult to teach someone how to do that. You just have to learn it through practice. Mm. Yeah, so I suppose it's a bit like skiing, isn't it? I learned to ski when I was in my 50s and uh, it's much harder than when you're six or seven. Yes, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> further to fall as well. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, um, you don't. Little kids bounce very well, don't they? Yeah. Older adults don't. So, um, what was the what was the training like then? Because I, you know, triathletes are familiar with training twice a day. Don't they don't do much gym work. Um, so, how, how did it uh, how did it pan out for you? What, when 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 I was training as an elite athlete, or the um, beginning, the early days? Yeah, when... let's let's start by the early days. And then and then go on to when you got up to competing at the elite level. 
Well, so obviously I, you know, I got in the kayak when I was nine. Um, but so over the years, you know, it just gradually increased. Um, you know, the club, it was first of all, it was like two or three times a week. And then it's, um, then it's four times, and then it's five times, you know, it just builds up. Um, but, and in the winter, in the summertime, it was a hundred percent on the water in those early days. Um, in the, in the winter, um, even in those early days, it was, we would then come off the water during the week. We would still be on the water in the weekend, but in the week, cause it was late, you know, the clocks go back and it's dark. So then a couple of times a week we'd be in the gym. So we do circuit training and running. Um, so building up the fitness and the strength was really important. And, and then obviously, you know, as time went on, I think by the age of about, I'm going to say 13 or 14, I probably started to do a couple of sessions in the morning before school, I guess. Yeah, around 14, maybe. I can't remember. So I should just say that our sport is, um, so the Olympic discipline is 500 metres. And for men, it's 500 and 1,000. For women, in my day, it was just 500 metres. So that's like a, a minute and 50 seconds. So um, I guess, you know, akin to uh, 800 metres on the track. Um, running and but the we also have marathon world championships and that's why I won my six world championships in is marathon racing so that when I first did my first marathon was actually 26.2 miles um, the distance was shortened over the years in order to become more akin to running distance uh, time so um, the last race I did in 2007 was probably well I think it was about 22 miles so more around the the two hour mark um, so, so my club was very much um, a big marathon racing club, um, although people did sprint and I ended up doing sprint as well. We were all about endurance. Um, so a lot of endurance training um, and yeah, so a mixture, a mixture of speed, endurance and, you know, pure stamina. Um, and then in the winter, the weight training. Um, and then over the years, as I started to try and do more sprint training as well, um, because actually my in the early years of my senior career, I I kept coming second um, at World Cup races, at the World Championships. I won two silver medals and I was losing on a sprint finish. So kayaking is a little bit akin to road cycling in that you sit, you know, like in the Peloton, you're sitting on the slipstream, you get, you know, you, you change positions, someone's at the front, someone's leading. It's the same in a kayak. So there's a slipstream and we call it sitting on the wash. So you're sitting on the wash of the boat in front of you. So you're getting towed along a little bit. So it's a very tactical race. And therefore, there's a lot of sprints. We also do a portage, which is where you get out of the boat. People think like, oh, this is triathlon all of a sudden because you get out of the boat and you run with the boat across the stretch of 60, 100 meters approximately, um, and then you get back in again. So, and then, so there's lots of changes in speed. So it's not just 100%. It's not like you're running marathon where it's just continuous pace. Um, we needed speed. So we did quite a bit of speed training as well. Um, and, and I had this ambition to be an Olympian. So, um, I, I I changed my training quite a bit um, at a certain point to try and build my speed. Um, so then we were the weight training in the gym changed um, to build more strength and power. And and on the water we were doing um, it's still you know the five hundred meters still it's still a middle distance let's say rather than a pure sprint. They introduced the two hundred meter later on, um, which is you know forty seconds, but. Um, yeah, so we're still 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 that little bit of in, that endurance in there and and speed training as well. So at certain points, you know, I was training six days a week. We always had a rest day um, and then definitely twice a day. Some coaches I trained with, we might train three times a day. We might be on the water. Then we go do a gym session mid-morning. Oh, so early morning water, mid-morning gym session, rest, and then a late afternoon uh, back on the water again. Um I've trained with you know a handful of coaches over the years and they all have different programs you know as you know different ways to skin a cat different ways to get the same outcome so yeah some were like no we only train twice a day others were like three times a day um but the volume was was high um and the intensity was high mm. when you're growing up and you're doing kayaking I guess because it's an upper body sport mostly I mean I know the legs are involved and you've got to have powerful legs out because you're effectively bracing and pushing against the kayak Yes. Um, do you 
do you do other activities? You mentioned running. Do you do other activities to help increase aerobic volume? Because you're not really using the biggest muscles of the body, are you, when you're using the upper body mostly? Yeah, so that's why we, we did a lot of running. Um, I worked with one coach who was, well, a couple of coaches who were really big into the swimming. She used to swim. I used to hate the swimming at the time. Um, and mainly because I wasn't very good at it. Um, and, but I'm so grateful for that now because I've got a hip injury and, and swimming is my source of fitness and training at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really grateful that I learned to swim really, you know, properly and trained swimming training. Um, so we used to swim, used to run. Um, and the best cardiovascular training I did that I loved was cross country skiing. Um, and I just loved that. And yeah, so we did, I did that a few winters, um, uh, you know, and also with the altitude as well. So that was brilliant. So we, you know, went to San Moritz, we went to Mm -hmm. uh, various places in the Alps. Um, I, yeah, so that was just fabulous. So to be out, cause you could just get longer, you could, because of the low impact you could train you know we'd be out doing two hour sessions two and a half hour sessions on the cross-country skis um so you could get a really good endurance training um which i would never run for two hours um i just you know we wouldn't do that in a morning training session so so that was brilliant and for me being out in the mountains in the fresh air you know Mm -hmm. doing that was just i loved it yeah i mean it's it's uh it's been a, a staple of a lot of Norwegian athletes over the years, hasn't it? Regardless of the the main sport. Yeah, yeah. And there was a Norwegian chap who, his name was Knut Holman. He was, you know, a legend of our sport in the sort of late nineties, early two thousands. And he evidently, so he did a lot of cross country skiing in the winter as part of his endurance training because obviously all the rivers and lakes are frozen, mm-hmm. so they literally can't get on the water unless you go. I mean, a lot of people end up going off to warmer climes, Florida, and all of that. But he used to do a lot of cross country, and I gather he was good enough to be on the Norwegian cross country wow. team um, for skiing. Yeah, um, because yeah, his endurance was just so amazing. Okay, so you you were doing that it was obviously very successful for you won three world championships you, you managed to get to the olympics now as far as far as i'm aware the longest distance is 500 or was 500 meters in the olympics wasn't it so there was no or still isn't any marathon kayaking no unfortunately you cannot paddle three 500 meters and then carry on for another 21.6 miles this is not an, op- not an option um so no yeah that was the only distance in my day so in two 2012 they introduced the 200 meters um but women have never done anything longer than 500 at the games um so yeah so i i managed to uh, make the olympic team in sydney uh in the singles k1 500 meter event and the year before that and the year after that i won my world titles in marathon as well mm. so and then but then you said you got ill so for those people who because again there's this you know this mixed message about what chronic fatigue syndrome is um explain from your understanding what it is and then how that affected you and the build-up to it, what were the drivers um, and at what point did you realise actually something's wrong here and this isn't just fatigue caused by lots of training? Yes, I mean, that's the hard thing, right, as an athlete, especially as an endurance athlete, is that you train volume, like the volume is high. I mean, as, as triathlon listeners listeners here today um, will know, you're doing a lot of hours of training and it's normal to be tired. Mm-hmm. Um, your muscles are tired, your body's exhausted from the training, but that's that's normal. Um, but I was getting to the point where my muscles were aching so bad that I literally couldn't hold my hands up, you know, to wash my hair in the shower, that was just tiring. It was painful. Um, so just, you know, lifting or drying my hair with a hairdryer, it was just painful to have my arm raised. Um, and then on the water, I just, you know, it got to the point where I just couldn't be out on the water for more than 20 minutes without being tired. Um, I just couldn't raise the energy to push hard anymore. Um, couldn't get my heart rate up. Um, so initially, you know, I went to see the sports doctor, the team doctor, and he was like, yeah, obviously overtrained. Um, it must be, that's what it is. You know, athlete complaining of, you know, tiredness, fatigue, muscle to ache, all of that. It's overtraining. So, um, that's what I was diagnosed with first. And actually the first symptoms of that began in 2000. Um, and I was told I was overtrained. And so actually I probably had two or three years of, little episodes small episodes of two or three weeks at a time when I'd get this just overwhelming fatigue and then I'd rest and I'd cut back on the training because they're going you've overtrained and then I'd recover and start training again um 
So yeah. there's, a, there's a difference, isn't there, between overtraining and chronic fatigue syndrome? Absolutely. And I think, again, that's um, that's something that's not really understood. Overtraining is just – and, again, there's, there's under-recovery. Is it overtraining or is it under-recovery? Is it overreaching, you know, which is which is okay, which is which is pushing too far, what are the stages of it? Um, but chronic fatigue is when overtraining has gone much further, isn't it? And it's, and it's a prolonged, hence the chronic thing. Well – um yes in the first part you're absolutely right um i don't think that chronic fatigue syndrome has anything to do with overtraining at all um that's not that's my experience it's not it's not a a, a, a sport related thing it's not mm-hmm. to do with because quarter of a million people in the uk suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome and they're not athletes right so chronic fatigue syndrome is a different it's an illness whereas overtraining is not an illness it's a it's a consequence of overtraining um, mm-hmm. or under recovery, as you say. Um, so I had an illness that was chronic fatigue syndrome, not overtraining. Um, that was what the doctors thought initially. And I spent the best part of the first 10 months of um, that period doing recovery in terms of what the doctors thought, treating the symptoms as overtraining. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. Nothing worked. You know, you, you should recover within 10 months if you're not doing anything. Um, and if you're, you know, I literally was, could only get on the water for 20 minutes at a time. I'd gone from being training, you know, 20, 24 hours a week, uh, three times a day. And I couldn't do more than 20 minutes of light paddling, you know, this equivalent of a very, very brisk walk. Um, and that would tire me out. And I did that and I was doing this recovery program where we're monitoring heart rate um, and gradually building up and I just couldn't progress. And so I tried that on and off for the best part of, yeah, probably from like April, 2003, probably till Christmas that year. Um, and it just didn't, nothing changed. So then I was like, well, this isn't overtraining because surely I should have recovered by now. Surely I should feel better and then there was periods when I just didn't train at all I didn't do anything I just stopped um that summer I just you know went on holiday and I was just like well I've missed the world championships I'll take some time out I'm not even going to do the recovery program I'm just going to rest um and I still didn't get better my arm still ached when I went up here so then I knew it was something else when you say it's an illness what are some some of the symptoms then that you experienced and that are common with chronic fatigue syndrome so everyone experiences slightly different symptoms but it's it's basically some people call it me um and so the the overriding the, you know the overwhelming symptom is the fatigue and the muscle ache um some people get real brain fog um you know the yeah for me those were the main things um, but some people have various other symptoms, but for me, that was it. Um, but I mean, I would call it an illness because it's, it's not caused by exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and some doctors would say it was a post-viral illness. Some doctors say that, you know, well, there's so much confusion, so many different theories about what mm-hmm. it is and what causes it. Um, but so I, to cut a long story short, I went on to, I tried many, I tried the conventional medicine, was told I'd never you know, that there was no treatment, there was no cure, you just have to rest. Um, there's no medicine you can take. Um, so then I tried alternative therapies, lots of different therapies we tried, um, and many of those didn't work. And then eventually I discovered a treatment called reverse therapy, mm-hmm. and that was what worked for me. And that recognizes that the mind and body are connected um, and that the symptoms are like alarm bells going off in your body. Um, they're your body's way of telling you that there are things going on in your life in your um that you that your body doesn't like and it's your body's way those symptoms are your body's way of telling you to change something to do something differently um and we have to listen to those to those signals those alarms and i wasn't very good at listening to the alarm bells just just to rewind for a bit for uh, clarity of the of the listeners so um I've I've been doing some a lot of studying recently on sleep and recovery, and they talk about um, adrenal fatigue, which is apparently isn't a thing, but a lot of people talk about those in the same um, yes. in the same sort of uh, conversation as uh, chronic fatigue, and they they call it HPA axis syndrome now, don't they? Is that is that, the, is that one and the same thing as chronic fatigue, or are they two different things? I, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure if it's 
Yeah, if they if it's clinically, that's called okay. the same thing. But I well, I did hear a lot. I did hear about adrenal fatigue. Someone said I had adrenal fatigue. Um, yeah, I, it, it's changing all the time, and there's lots of different theories. So I don't really know. And yes, perhaps it was adrenal fatigue. And I guess essentially, when your body is in in a fight or flight response regularly, then you're going to get adrenal fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're doing things that are causing stress for your body mentally and emotionally, you're going to be in adrenal fatigue because you're firing off the the sympathetic system of your nervous system. Mm. Um, so, yeah. One of the reasons I got in touch with you, because I read a chapter about you in Alistair Brownlee's book, Relentless, and he talks about this, but he also, or the interview and conversation you had with him talks about how you changed your training location to well, did you go to America? And so therefore yeah, so, you, you removed yourself from that training group you were talking about earlier. Yeah. So I, prior to the Sydney Olympic Games, I went off to Florida to train and I went to train with America, a Canadian group. Um, so we were in Florida training with Canadian coach um, and it was brilliant. I had a great coach there, had a great training group. Um and when I left there to come back and do the Olympic trials, I had to come home and train on my own. But I loved the training program that we were doing. So I wanted to continue training with that coach, mm-hmm. albeit on my own in the UK. Um, so I created this environment where I was doing a training program that was being sent to me. I'd speak to my coach on the phone, but I was doing a lot of training on my own. And I, I'm very, very motivated. I'm able to push myself hard to go training on my own. Um and it was fine for a while. Um, in fact, for that year, it was fine. And over that next two or three years, I continued that sort of pattern of sometimes going out to train with my coach and the team and that group, uh, training group, and then a lot of the time being on my own in the UK. So I'd be at my club, but I wouldn't join in with everything at my club and I'd go off and do my own thing. And what I didn't realise was that I thought that it was all about the training program. I just needed to train hard, just needed to do the right training and push myself really hard. And that's what I did. But I'm not a robot and I need so much more than that. And I needed support. I needed people around me. I needed, you know, banter for training. I needed, you know, the coach to be able to shout at when it wasn't going well. I needed emotional support. Um, I needed friends, training partners um, to have a laugh with. I'm an extrovert and I get my energy from people. Mm-hmm. And I was spending a lot of time on my own. Um, and that wasn't healthy for me as an individual, um, emotionally and mentally. And so that they were the triggers that were causing my body to say, don't like this environment. Don't like these pressures you're putting on yourself. The reason I'm interested in this particularly, Anna, is triathlon is quite a solitary sport. A lot of people, that, a lot of the recreational triathletes, because that would be the, the major um proportion of our listeners are people who are doing this as their hobby but still if you're training for well even if you're not training for Ironman um, if you're training for shorter distance events most people are training on their own because a they can't be, find enough people mad enough to do what they want to do but b you know everybody has their own work schedule and as I mentioned in our pre-chat people are fitting training in around work and collecting the kids and all the other things to do and it's and it's rare to find you know a group of other people who have that same schedule. So there's a lot of people training on their own. And all of those things that you just mentioned, then there's no banter. It's another session when you're going out on your own. It's fine when the weather's like it is now and the sun's shining. But if it's raining or it's cold in the winter, it's difficult to get yourself out. And, um, you know, it just feels monotonous and relentless. And I do wonder if that sort of training environment that people are creating for themselves is actually something that's holding them back and whether the, the group environment that you talk about might, might actually be of benefit, even if it's not exactly what you want to do because your coaches set you another session, having those people around you and getting, the, getting a session done could actually provide more benefits. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, the challenge for me was that my whole life was that, you know, whereas I guess if this is your hobby, you go to work, you've got mm-hmm. – um, you know, you might be in, in the office with people. Your work provides that um, social environment that you need. Whereas for me, it was very much this is two or three times a day doing this on my own um, and not having that support. So but yes, I mean, looking back, what would I do differently? I'd, 
yeah, I, I, knowing what I know, I, I couldn't do that training. It wasn't it wasn't that I had trouble getting out and doing that on my own when it was dark, it was cold, it was raining, it was winter time. I had no problem the motivation to get out. It was that I needed this emotional support. Um, so yeah, I think that. I don't know. I guess everyone's different, though. I mean, like if you ask um, Tim Brabant, he did a lot of training on his own as well. Mm. Um, he's a different personality to me, though, and maybe he was that was okay for them. But not everything he didn't do on his own, but he did a lot. Um, and some people are okay with that. But what I guess the the, the lesson really is about listening to your body. Mm. Um, you know, and I probably wasn't very happy, but I didn't notice it. And I just thought, actually, I've got these goals, I've got these ambitions, and this is what I have to do, regardless. You know, I've just got to train hard, and even if it's not so much fun, I just got to do this. And I, and I love the training, but I wasn't probably enjoying it as much as I could. Um, and we get the best out of ourselves when we love and enjoy what we're doing. So I think that the lesson really is maybe you can't. Maybe it's a combination of doing some stuff on your own, but everyone's different. Mm. And it's about listening to your body and what's right for you um, and being aware. And I think the problem a lot of the time is that, you know, often we're so busy. And if you're if you're, you're this is an amateur sport for you, then you're busy. You're trying to train. You've probably got family. You're trying to work. You do all of these things. And we cram so much into our day that we probably don't give ourselves time to stop and pause and reflect on what's actually going on and what's working for us, what's not. You know, we leave no space to reflect and observe what's going on. Yeah, and that's I mean, a big problem. I mean, there's a couple of things there I was going to mention. Going back to the group thing, if you look at the way the Kenyans and the Ethiopian runners are, they're often in camp, they're running as a group. Yeah, um, They do that a lot. Alistair and Johnny have always had a cohesive group around them in Leeds that they train with and they still train with now. Yeah, um, and, and they'd have each other if there wasn't a group. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and if you look at um, going back into the seventies, they were producing some really good marathon runners in America, which they haven't really been able to replicate since. And a lot of that was from a group of runners in Boston who used to run together regularly and push each other on in training sessions. So that yeah. you talk about that in your uh, in your conversation with Alistair about the competitiveness of a training situation, about pushing yourself against another person, yeah. um, which p- perhaps we don't realise is how important that is. Yeah. But, and, you know, so I think there's one is that, you know, I used to think I was pushing myself really hard and and was I, could I've got more if I was with someone else possibly, but what was, what was, what I loved about when I came back from the honest was, was it, I loved the competitiveness of that training session. Mm. That was fun. So one, I was probably getting more out of myself, but two, I loved it. I loved racing someone in training. Um, and so I'm getting a double bonus of pushing myself harder and enjoying it. And because I'm enjoying it, I'm probably going harder. And and so it's just a lovely virtuous cycle. Um, yeah. So that's really important. I, I do think that fun and enjoyment and love uh, is, is is critical. I, I spoke um, spoke to another friend of mine who's a top fell runner, and he's in his early 50s now. And he says, oh, I'm still running with a group of lads three times a week that I've run with since I was 18. You know, mm-hmm. and we go off and do events. He said, but we'll cycle over to the events. And it's a, it's a short fell race that ends at a pub, but we'll cycle over there. But the, the commute to get to the race ends up as a race. Yeah. And then coming back, there's another competition so you can get back first or get back before the pub closes. So it, there's all these little competitive bits in there that, but, that are just part of what they do. It's not, you know... Um, yeah and that's the fun of it right and so it's yeah. not just the race that's fun it's the whole process that's fun the getting mm. there the getting back the drink in the pub the whole thing is enjoyable mm-hmm. and I think I lost a lot of enjoyment but I didn't mm. notice mm. because I was so focused on what I was trying to achieve and doing the right training that I lost sight of that so you talk about having busy lives and fitting all this training in and all the other things we do that means we've got no space at all. Now, all of those things, and you, you talked about the fight or flight system a few moments ago, all of those things put us into that fight or flight, don't they? The sympathetic system. And we do need, you know, it's a hormonal requirement to have rest and digest. Going back to caveman times, you go out and you'd either hunt for food or get chased by the food you were trying to hunt or by another tribe. And then you come back and go in your cave and you sleep it off and recover. So you've got a, a nice yin and yang balance. But we seem to have, modern life has sort of removed a lot of that from us and we haven't helped. Um, and I know, I know a lot of people, particularly triathletes, will say, well, if I've, got, if I've got extra time to do something, I feel a little guilty that I'm sitting down, so I'll, mm. I'll fill that time. But actually it's important, isn't it, to have, to have some time to get into the rest and digest state. 
Yeah, I, I think that many athletes are guilty of that. And it's that kind of personality that's drawn to these kind of sports. Mm-hmm. And But actually, the what I've discovered is that the best and the most resilient athletes are the ones that know when to work hard and train and push it really hard. And the ones that know when to then step back and take a rest and recover. And, you know, I am and and I'm sure many of those listening are hardwired to keep wanting to do more and more. But actually, that's not the way to to sustain that high level of training and get the best out of yourself. Um, Yes, you have to work hard and do the volume, but you also need to know when to take a step back and when to listen to your body and when to recover, because it's in the recovery that we build the growth. Right. You know, it just you just think about weight training and you go to the gym and you break down the muscle mm-hmm. in the gym. That's what happens, right? You, you stress the muscle to the point of damage and then you have to let it recover. And in that recovery period is that's when it repairs and it regrows and it comes back stronger. Um, so we, we have to build recovery in, we can't mm-hmm. just keep breaking down, breaking down all the time. And so, and it, and it, and it's the same with the mental and emotional muscle. And if I'm, you know, in that environment that's becoming stressful and I'm not building in recovery. And I talked about this, you know, I talk with um, my work now is in the corporate world and it's the same thing. People who just work, 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 no breaks throughout the day, eat lunch at their, at their desk, you know, all of that. You're not building any recovery in and it's stress after stress and, and there's no time to switch off. Um, and there's no time for an athlete to, to observe what's going on in your mind and your body. Mm-hmm. Whatever work or or sport you're doing, I firmly believe that we have to find a way of of expending our energy and recovering our energy. And and we call it oscillation, this idea of spending and recovering energy, bouncing between the two. Mm. Um, and it's just so crucial for high performance in any walk of life. Yeah, and when you look at studies on productivity, you actually find that people who do take those breaks and allow the mind to recharge and just um, refocus are actually more productive than those who look busy. So yeah, absolutely. Produ- because Productiveness versus busyness. Yes, and um, we know neuroscience studies show that you, your mind literally cannot focus for more than like 90 to, to 120 minutes mm-hmm. um, without being, you can't be fully engaged and fully focused. You have to switch off. And if you think about it, you know, the eureka moment, the, the big problems that you solve never happen when you're full on running, at a, you know, living life at 100 miles per hour. They happen when you switch off, when you slow down, when you're going for that walk in the countryside, perhaps when you're running. Um, you know, those are the times when we get those brilliant ideas. I mean, I now that training's not my, you know, my my life and my um, profession, I solve my problems when I'm doing my exercise because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's when you, well, for me now, it's that's when I switch off. Um, and so it's, it's so crucial that we find opportunities to, to switch off the mind and the body. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people nodding like, like, yeah, yeah. All my ideas come when I've uh, had a nap and I've woken up or I'm sitting driving or doing something quiet. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you know, it's a bit like when you, um, when you read a book or read a, a newspaper or a document at work and you have to read the same paragraph three times over because mm-hmm. it's just not going in. And that's because we haven't probably, you've been full on all day or you've been busy, stressed, running from one meeting to the next. You know, you just don't, you're not switching off. And so it's just not going in. And that's your sign that you need to build recovery in. And it's the same in sport. Yeah, I, um, as part of this recovery course, they were talking about a concept where you're, whether you're like a light switch, you're either on it and you're working and you're 100% or you're off it. But there's none of this, co- there's none of this coasting along where you sort of yeah. didn't work or you're kind of busy. You're either really busy and get it done yes. or or just really relax. And yeah. actually, again, it, it might seem like you're wasting time, but time and again, studies have shown that that's a way more productive way to approach everything in your life. Yeah, because then you give it a hundred percent. When you're when you're on, you're giving a hundred percent. You're working really efficiently. You're getting more done. You're reading the paragraph first time mm-hmm. and getting it in. And then when you're switching off, you switch off altogether. And mm. You just totally relax. And and I think that's something that I didn't do brilliantly as an athlete either. Was was recover fully between the training sessions. I was, um, yeah, you know, like you said, feeling like I need to be productive and busy. I was, you know, working on my website and doing an event for my sponsors and, you know, just stuff. Um, I started doing motivational speaking and 
when I should have just been at home recovering um, and yeah, running around doing too many things and that's not conducive to good recovery for an athlete. Yeah. I, I have this debate with a lot of triathletes about what is real recovery because you know, a lot of people tell me, well, my legs, my legs feel okay now, so I can go out and run. I'm recovered. I've done an Ironman. It took me 12 hours, but I've had a week off and I've got another race in three weeks time. And of course you can get through it. And if you go on any of the social media channels, there'll be lots of people saying, yeah, I did that. I did three races in three months and I was fine. Again, individual differences, but we keep, when we don't ever fully recover, we build up fatigue, don't we? And, and, and we sort of in this gradual decline, we're partly recovered, then more tired, then partly recovered, more tired until something hits us, which brings us to a complete stop. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think you never reach, you know, you, every time you recover, you don't, you only get to 80%. And then the next time you recover and you come back up, you're only at 70%. So you're never hitting a hundred percent because you're not recovering fully. Mm. So, um, before we talk about your corporate work, um, tell us about retirement because I know that's a, that's a challenging time in itself for athletes. And there's a ch- there's a challenge to your identity, isn't there? Because you've been known as Anna the kayaker, Anna, Anna the world champion, and all of a sudden you haven't got that anymore. So, did you find it difficult to make that transition from sporting life to working life? Yeah, yeah, it was hard. Um, I, but I think I would kind of. Um, I'd lost the enjoyment in the sport. So, um, so that, you know, the decision was, you know, when I finished in 2008, everyone, well, there was all the talk about London 2012. So that was hard from a sort of an emotional, oh, I kind of like to be involved in that. But then at the same time, I was like, I just don't think I can keep doing it. I just don't, you know, I'm falling out of love with this. It's becoming stressful to train. Um, it's a long time, four years, isn't it? It's a four time, you know, it's like, yes, those two or three weeks will be amazing. Um, but there's a four year, you know, hard block of slog of training to do in between that. And I just didn't want to do it. Um, so the decision wasn't too hard, but yes, it is hard. Um, because you do have this identity. It took me a long time to not need to feel strong and fit. And, you know, I I could rattle off a hundred press ups and chin ups and all of that. And, and then when I, did, couldn't do I, that. Those are the things that I kept doing for a long time, even when I didn't need to. I was like, I need to be able to do press ups. Why? Who? What are you trying to prove? You know, why do you need to be able to do that? And I can't do 100 press ups anymore. And I'm like, it's okay. It's okay, Anna. It's okay. You can't do that. <laughs> um, I still have to tell myself that. And um, so, yeah, it, it is. It is difficult. But I guess I quite quickly set up my training consultancy and was able to. I guess, move from, uh, you know, Anna the kayaker, but to Anna the speaker, Anna the, you know, leadership development, training consultant, coach, uh, leadership coach. And so I was still, you know, particularly doing the inspirational speaking. I speak at a lot of conferences and events internal. And um, so I was still getting to be the athlete almost, I suppose. So I wasn't ditching that identity altogether. Although I wasn't competing, I was still there, talking about my journey, sharing my experiences. How did I reach the highest level? What did I do? How does that apply to your world? So I was still quite connected um, to what I what I used to do, I suppose. Um, so that, I think, made it a little bit easier. What also made it easier was that I quite quickly had this new challenge to get myself, my teeth into. Um, I think what's hard is when, and I did have a good, you know, year or so of going, oh, I don't really know what to do. I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know. You know, everyone else in my peer group have been in their jobs for 10 years and well-established and earning mm-hmm. good money. And geez, I've got to start at the beginning. Um, and then I realized that actually I'm not starting at the beginning because I do have a lot of strengths. I do have a lot of skill. I just need to translate it into something else. Mm-hmm. I've learned so much from my sport. How can I use that to help? And then I, you know, then I did. And I think, you know, I was very goal focused as we are as athletes. You know, you've got that mission every year. It's world championships or it's whatever it is. You've got those targets. And when you don't have that, then you feel a little bit you know, lost because it's like, I don't know what my direction is. I don't know what I'm aiming for every mm-hmm. day. What am I getting up for? And so when I create, when I decided to run the training, build the training consultancy, it's like, right, now I've got a vision. Now I've got a target. Now I've got some goals and I'm back in that structure of, you know, mm-hmm. what am I working? What am I getting up every day for? Um, so that, that's what made it easier. 
Um, and then I, I'd learned that I needed people around me. I needed support. I needed people to help me. Um, and so I wasn't going to make those mistakes again and be isolated. So one of the things I'm really interested in the work you do in the corporate world is, is how you use heart rate variability. Um, because I think it's different to what most people um, that are listening will understand in terms of measuring recovery. So rather than me getting it wrong, perhaps you could explain to us how you teach people to measure HRV, what tools you use and, and, and in what context you use it to help in the workplace. Yeah, so um, I discovered heart rate variability it was one of the very early training courses I went on when I, you know, started doing what I do now. Uh, back in like 2010, I think I did the course. Um, I, I discovered HeartMath, um, so a US-based company, and uh, went out there to train and become a um, HeartMath trained provider. And um, it was all about measuring HRV to manage the autonomic nervous system. And um, so rather than using HRV, which a lot of athletes are doing today to measure recovery and to measure whether you're good to train or not that day, it was about, and, and it, this isn't something that we would, the devices we were using, HeartMath had um, this product or still do called the M-Wave technology. And you'd, use, you'd literally put this little clip on your ear and it picks up the pulse. You don't have a pulse in your ear, but there's a lot of blood flow in the ear. And so you can pick up the pulse and then you could, and the, the technology would measure HRV. So heart rate variability, you know, measuring the variation in, in the heartbeats. Um, and, and you could see, and it was more about, it was less about, um, a figure, a number, because everyone's heart rate variability is different. It was more about the pattern. Um, and they talked about coherence and, um, a very chaotic looking heart, HRV heart pattern um, would be what they called incoherent, where there was not much balance and uh, a more balanced. So equal and opposite. So an equal, a balanced heart rate uh, pattern was what we call a coherent pattern, where um, we were essentially seeing equal and opposite um, activity in the two branches of the autonomic nervous system. So the, uh, the sympathetic branch and the parasympathetic branch. And and really, it's derived by, from our breath. So we're using it to manage stress, to manage anxiety. Um, so with every inhale, the heart rate rises. And with every exhale, the heart rate falls. And so we would teach a breathing technique where we would get an equal and opposite reaction. Um, so we're managing to calm. So when, when we're stressed, for example, when you're, um, you know, you wake up in the morning and 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 you know the, the alarm hasn't gone off or you know the kids are not getting ready for school and you're late and you're going to miss the train and then you've got a meeting and it's a big important presentation you're doing with your boss and all these stresses that happen in the space of two hours and your heart rate's been rising and your autonomic nervous system's been firing and you're in fight or flight mode without even really noticing it and that's been triggering that sympathetic branch of your system before you know before lunchtime you're in sympathetic overdrive and so what what the breathing techniques help you to do is to balance that system. So we're bringing in more of the parasympathetic system, which is recovery, right? Every time we exhale, we're recovering. And so about creating balance. And it's about looking at that heart pattern to create balance in the system. Do you find that when somebody's got a lifestyle like you've just described, you know, the pressure building up as we're chasing our tail throughout the morning, that they're almost... Um, hyperventilating and they're not yes. breathing properly so the breathing's very shallow and if we, yes. I talk to a couple of breathing experts on the on the show here we talk about how people just use the top third of the lungs which is the probably that has the least volume and we don't breathe deeply and you, also if you wander around public places you see a lot of people are mouth breathers as well so they're not yeah. they're not they're not using the um the breathing system properly and, and they're doing that just out of habit because they're almost in a panic mode aren't they which yeah. which is the fight or flight yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that shortness of breath, the deep, deep, shallow breathing, really common. And also, if you look at the HRV, there's less variability. So yeah. the more stressed you are, the less variability there is. If someone's you know, regularly um, keeping that system in balance, is fit, is healthy, is young, we'll see greater. So as you age, you get less variability anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but you can see someone who's 60 have a really great you know, depth of HRV. 
like someone who was 30 because they're managing their stress they're managing that to balance that system so um yeah and that shallowness of the of the the heart pattern will be to do a lot because of the stress and the breathing that's shallow so very small breath in short breath out and so we're getting a smaller um pattern and depth of variability so how do you how do you train an individual as in train their habits to include this in their day is it something that they would do in the morning and um, before they get out of bed is it something you encourage them to sort of take moments out of their day to just uh, spend a little time focusing on the breathing and when they do introduce these practices how long do they need with each one is it and is it i'm asking you a few questions here so hopefully you're remembering them all do they, do they need to do that one intervention during the day or do they need to have lots of small interventions sort of like a micro dosing type thing so, I mean, because I work with um, in the corporate world, I encourage people to literally do the breathing techniques for like a minute, 90 seconds at a time. Because mm-hmm. if I say, tell someone to do it for 10 minutes, they're just not going to do it. No. I mean, if you could do it for five or 10 minutes, that'd be brilliant. Um, but I say to people, do it for 60, 90 seconds and just do it as many times as you can remember throughout the day. And if that's once or twice, that's better than nothing. But if you could do it, you know, four or five times in a day that's brilliant and I also encourage people to just to try and attach it to to something so attach it as in um every time I sit down at my desk in the morning before I open up my computer I'm just going to do that for a minute so or, it's like a ha- it's like a habit so it becomes stacking, a habit yeah habit and stacking, so isn't it? yeah exactly um and but you know I'm driving along in the car you can do some breathing exercises when you drive okay every time I get hit the red light that way, that's my cue to breathe. Um, when I'm standing in the checkout at Tesco and I'm, you know, wait, rather than pulling out my phone and looking at my phone, do yep. it then. Um, you know, because breathing exercises don't necessarily need to be something, perhaps when you're just learning to do it, you might want to sit in a quiet place and be on your own and all of that. But actually, we're breathing every day, all the time, every minute of the day. And so you've got to breathe anyway. And it's just about being conscious of your breathing and le- you need to learn to do this anytime, any place, because also I'm teaching people to do this one for managing their stress, but two for managing performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. So if you're about to go and do a presentation or sit on the start line of a race, you've got to be able to manage your breath. You can't go, Oh, give me a minute. I just need to go to the toilet and practice it in, in quiet in the toilet. You know, you need to be able to do this anywhere, anytime, any place. So I encourage people to do it wherever. Mm. And you can still listen and breathe deeply. Um, and, and I kind of get people to do it in two ways. One is to, yes, do it, be present, do it here. And now while I'm listening to you talk, I'm in a meeting, I'm waiting for something, you know, in the queue, whatever. Or when I'm walking from meeting to meeting. And another chart time is, okay, do it when you're you've got that quiet space and you just want to switch off from everything and you just want to get present and in the moment and tune into your body and your breath and then yes do that in a quiet place and that that has that's for me serves a slightly different purpose yes you're balancing the autonomic nervous system but two you're also switching your mind off and Mm. that has real value as well um so uh, yes do it as do it for short because you're likely to do it and that's there's, what's important. There's an awful lot of stuff around as well about um, practicing these breathing habits, deliberate breathing practice before you go to bed in terms of um, for, for inducing a better night's sleep, if you like, yeah. because you're calmer. Yeah. Um, you can use that as a sort of like a segue between this is my work waking day and this is my sleeping day. And now this is the yeah. transition, like walking down the tunnel to an event, if you yeah. like. Yeah, so um, especially people who have trouble switching off their mind and just like lie in bed and my mind's racing then the breathing is a brilliant tool because it helps to focus your attention in the present moment on your breath it helps to quieten the mind down and quite often if we've had a really stressful day cortisol levels are high and and your body has been in overdrive most likely the sympathetic system is in overdrive so we need to bring in practices that are going to bring in that parasympathetic system, which is what breathing does. So a brilliant tool for before bed or waking up in the middle of the night and Mm. practicing that. I've found, you know, those moments you talk about when you're waiting in the traffic, when you're stuck, stuck in the queue at 
at, at the supermarket, waiting, waiting in a queue at the airport for the security to get you through there. Those are moments when you can feel your blood boiling. And actually, those yeah, are perfect you're in a moments. rush. It's stressful. You've got nothing else to do other than wait there. So it's amazing how it can take the edge off a situation if you just spend – uh, I mean, you don't have to sort of go and sit in the corner, do you? You can just stand there and just focus on your breathing and just be quiet and um, way more way more productive and useful than scrolling through social media. Yeah, which is what we're just like, everyone's got this habit that, oh, I've got two minutes, let's pull out the phone. But we don't need to do that. And we can do something far more effective for our mind and our body, which is to focus on our breath. Well, of course, as we know from the various programs and, and things we've seen about the the harmful effects of social media is that that's given, trying to give us a dopamine hit. It's going to rise our cortisol. So it's actually doing the exact opposite of what we really want to in that moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So just to wrap up then, um, a few little tips for our listeners to get started with this type of um, breathing. I, just, just to rewind a little bit from there, there's a lot in the common press and, and media at the moment about breathing, particularly Mr. Wim Hof. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, they've had that documentary series with, with some other celebrities on the TV recently. Um, we don't need to go down the route of following Wim Hof's extreme breathing methods, though, do we? But is there is there a particular way in which we need to be breathing or is it just making sure we get a full inhale from the diaphragm and then a full exhale through through the nose? So I do um, encourage people to breathe ideally for around four to five seconds on the inhale and four to five seconds on the exhale. Um, ideally, five seconds in, five seconds out is is, to, is the official heart math breathing technique. Um, and we can measure that is what gives us the, from the science, from the research, we know that that is um, proven to have the most, most health benefits. Um, but there are many different breathing techniques, right? And people talk about breathing in and holding your breath for three and then breathing out and longer in, longer out. There's all these different ones. That's what I use. That's what I've learned about in terms of the science, the research that um, is really beneficial. And if someone was really stressed, um, I would encourage them to do four and six. So breathing in for four and a slightly longer out breath. Mm -hmm. So just lengthening that out breath so that we're activating the parasympathetic system for a little bit longer. And that, and if you're really super nervous before an event, you know, a presentation, whatever it might be, anxious about something, then that longer out breath. So when you're breathing quite shallow, it's really important to breathe a little bit longer on the out breath. And that's what helps to bring the heart rate down. And even whilst you do it and you think, God, my heart rate, I can feel my heart rate pounding still. Just keep doing it and it will just help to slow everything down. Maybe not it won't bring it down from 120 to 80, but you will bring it down a little bit and mm -hmm. you just keep doing it. And the more you do it, the more you get used to doing it and the better you get at it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I recommend. Um, and if that and if you are someone who's been quite a shallow breather and quite stressed, then you might start with three or four and kids, actually younger kids. You know, I've done some stuff with kids in schools. They can't do as long as that. It's hard. So, that you know, I encourage three. But you start with what feels comfortable and that's what you're aiming for. Um, and you don't have to go around breathing like that all day long, but um, just do it you know, intermittently through your day. It does become a habit, though, doesn't it, to to take longer inhales and exhales as you as you get used to that sort of breathing. I find myself doing it much better now um, than I would have previously, just because I, I practice that breathing more. Yeah, exactly. And and then also, the more you do it, see, the thing is, if you need, to, so I encourage people to do it prior to a stressful event you know that something's coming up where you're going to be nervous or you just want to perform at your best you you know you've got a really difficult conversation to have and I want to be on it um then that helps to clear your mind and then I encourage people to do it after a stressful event so with the technology the the M wave technology um you can measure the stress response and you can see the heart rate variability and we can see, I mean, I do this in my workshops. You can see, I, I get people to feel, you know, um, do some things that might get them a little bit nervous and anxious in the moment and we can measure it. And then I'm like, right now we do the breathing and we can see it just change um, instantly in front of a room of 30, 40, 50, 100 people. Mm. Um, and, and so I show people that, you know, you've had a, a stressful conversation on the phone or a big argument with someone then you do it immediately after that. You know, any kind of stressful event, you do it post that. 
So you're trying to reset your system and and as quickly as possible reduce the stress and the damage on your nervous system. So mm-hmm. do it pre and do it post. Um, and But the more we're practicing it through the day, the more likely we're to remember to do it. Because if you never do it and you think, oh, I'll just do it when I'm stressed or after I have a stressful event, you'll forget. And so now I've been doing it for so long that any time I have any kind of stressful moment, my default response is to mm. breathe. Mm. That's just how, you know, I notice I'm aware. I can feel the tension in my body. I can feel my heart rates rising. I can feel my shoulders rise, and I can feel my breathing quickening. And I'm like, okay, it's time to breathe. And I just, I know, and that's just automatic now. And that's what happens as a result of frequent practice. Some of the pushback I get when I, when I talk about breathing with people as well, I've, I've been breathing all my life, you know, I've got to the age of 40, so I must be doing okay at it. But actually I, I would guess if you, did a you know took a random group of 50 people and asked them to do the, the, some breathing you'd find that most people weren't breathing as effectively as you could one of the things that um, i know the physios do is get people to take a big breath in and just look at people and see how many of them breathe by lifting the shoulders up and expanding yeah. the chest yeah, yeah you shouldn't really see that sort of movement in the upper you shouldn't see uh, any movement no but but that's exactly what you see when you say right then i'm ready um, yeah. So, so that's your starter, is um, yeah, and and that's why we use the um, there's an app on the phone that we can we use now um, with the technology and and we can show and that's what you know we do in our workshops. We there's these levels of coherence. You've got red, red and green, so red, green, and blue, low, medium, and high levels of coherence. And and you say you know everyone's like, well, I can breathe. Of course, I can breathe. Mm-hmm. But actually, can you breathe? And to a point of getting this high level of coherence where the um, the different systems in your body are aligned. And if you can't get to this green state of high coherence, then you're not breathing in, a, in an efficient way. Mm. So it's a really useful te- – that's why the technology for me in my corporate workshops, because we get a lot of cynicism and a lot of people saying, oh, well, I can breathe and I've been told this and, you know, what's this really going to do for me? But when you can prove in real time mm-hmm. with a member of the audience that – Actually, this is what's happening, and this is the impact you can have when you breathe in this way. Then it proves to people, those doubters um, that actually it's not just about breathing the way you've been breathing for the last 40 years. Um, that's not serving you well. So for, for somebody who's listening now who's got really enthusiastic about uh, what we've been talking about, um, four to five seconds in, four to five seconds out, little spaces you've got during the day when you'd be likely to do something less productive with your time um, and stacking with another habit. So that's an atomic habits type of uh, lesson, yes. isn't it? That one. Yes. Um, are those, are those the three main things you think? Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. Yeah. If you can aim for five seconds in five seconds out, that's great. Um, do it for a minute, do it for two minutes, do it for what, you know, a minim- minimum would be one minute. If you can do it for longer than that, that's brilliant. Um and then, you know, if you're an athlete and you're wanting to train the mind, then that's a brilliant thing to do prior to some visualization training, for example, because you you clear the mind and then you can you can see the imagery better. You can see yourself performing if you've created that that excellent coherent state in your mind and body prior to a mental training exercise like that, um, which I'm a big fan of. Is it possible? If you were doing easy to moderate type of training, the sort of training you might have done when you were on a long kayak, um, to actually combine this with some breathing then and really focus on your breathing, um, or do you pref- do you prefer it to be done at times of rest and and stillness? Yeah, for me, it's more about um, in the recovery. Um, it's about managing managing your physiological state, perhaps prior to competing and that's going to vary from individual to individual because some people need to be really up and really you know the adrenaline pumping but we don't want it to be for me I guess it's more about when for those people who are going over the top and that it's it's so um the adrenaline's too high Mm -hmm. you want to bring it down um but yeah I think it's difficult when you're running everyone has a different you know for me I do like to have regular breathing patterns when I run um but it wouldn't be five seconds in and five seconds out. That's too long no. when you're running. I don't think you can do that. Or I don't know. Some people possibly can. But, yeah, for me, this is about recovery. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm managing I, stress response. Yeah. I, one of the things I got into during lockdown was to go for a walk in the woods, um, you know, just because there's a lot of 
data about um, being in nature, isn't there? And, and, and that yeah. sort of um, forest bathing, I think the Japanese call it. And I, I did start trying to combine that with nose breathing as I was going around and taking long breaths as I was walking around. But I'm not walking at a brisk pace. I'm just walking around and yeah, that's different. the birds and the trees. And so that's, that seems to be a nice combination there. And obviously, you need a bit more time than two minutes to do that. But it's a, it's a really nice way of rebalancing everything throughout the day. Yeah, but there's no reason why you can't do the breathing for longer. You know, you can do it for five minutes, for 10 minutes. You know, mm -hmm. I, I say one or two minutes just because I know the, my audience and they won't do it for longer than that. <laughs> um but that can have impact um but yeah if you can sit in a quiet place and sit in the in the woods for five minutes and do that or do it for five minutes of your walking time then then yeah brilliant so Anna I'm fairly certain that there'll be some people who are interested in what you do um where where can people find you what's the easiest place um so i have a website annahemmings.com that's a really easy one to find me um and then my training consultancy is called beyond the barriers beyondthebarriers.co.uk um i'm on linkedin and yeah i'm on twitter a little bit um but yeah that's that's mostly where you can find me well we'll put all of those links in the show notes so maybe you will get an inquiry or two from some of our listeners that'd be lovely well it's been fantastic to catch up thank you so much it just fills in another little piece about hrv and breathing that we've been trying to promote on the show for the last uh, two or three years so thank you for uh, sharing that with us yeah you're welcome thanks for having me simon Okay, bye-bye for now, Anna. Bye. To make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and subscribe. And while you're there, please could you leave a review and a rating as well? We really appreciate those. Please remember also that I have free gifts for anyone who signs up to my mailing list. And you can find that link in the show notes or you can email beth at thetriathloncoach.com. So before we go, I'd like to say thank you again to Anna for being a guest on this week's podcast. As usual, you can find links of all today's discussion topics in the show notes below. So that's it for this week. Have a good one and I will see you on the next episode.